taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Ronan, Montana and Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, and we'll begin with the word of the Lord, this time coming from Revelation chapter 5, verse uh, 8, which says, Day and night, the angels never stop saying, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and is to come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hello, everyone. You know what? We're in the last days, the last days of the podcast series, our uh, summer interview series, and uh, we are uh, on the on the verge of finishing out the, the last one here. Um, remember, we'll be doing a recap and a QA. and uh, a so get those uh, questions in so we can uh, answer uh, those pesky, those pesky uh, and most pressing questions that you have. Um, let's go ahead and welcome on Brian. Hello, Brian. Hello, Curtis. Hope you're doing well today. <laughs> yeah, we're doing good. Yes. Yeah, so we got uh, we're right on last on the last part of the series here, and uh, I it's kind of bittersweet because um, I want to get onto some other topics and subjects and stuff, but yet um, I've been having so much fun just uh, interviewing people and just and and seeing what's out there um, for people to glean wisdom and knowledge from and, and to just glean information from to actually help form their theological stand. And I think that, uh, you know, I think that's really what this, uh, what this series really has kind of brought out is, is some good basis for people to sit on and to, and to be able to then work from. And I think that's, I think that's pretty cool. Absolutely. And we're definitely going out with a bang uh, today because yeah. talk about <laughs> yeah. all, all of those that you mentioned, you, we're going to definitely get today from tonight's guest. And so I am uh, I am excited to uh, announce that we have with us the moral apologetics extraordinaire himself. I feel like we need to have some type of uh, wrestling theme music for like we are the champion or something. <laughs> <laughs> but we have with us Dr. David Baggett. Little little WWE stuff going on yeah. there back in the day WWF. <laughs> Maybe have some of the Nature Boy Ric Flair music going. There. <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, so we have with us Dr. David Baggett. Dr. Baggett, thank you for joining us today on the Bellator Christie Podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> So we want to let everybody know that we have, uh, prior to our podcast, we recorded a new uh, ad that will be airing here on uh, the Bellator Christie podcast uh, for the Center for the Foundation of Ethics at HBU. And so uh, you'll hear more about that. And we'll talk a little bit more about it towards the end of the podcast as well. Uh, so we're talking today about moral apologetics and and who better, in all seriousness, who better to have uh, than, than Dr. David Baggett. So Dr. Baggett, first and foremost what is moral apologetics and what does moral apologetics uh, what does the moral argument uh, set out to do yeah when you hear the phrase moral apologetics uh, people will often say well what exactly is that right it might it might seem to indicate something like apologetics done in a moral way 
<laughs> and that's a good idea. I, I encourage that. <laughs> right? Uh, we should uh, treat people well and kindly when we interact with them and have discussions. And oftentimes that speaks uh, louder than anything else, you know, how we conduct ourselves in conversations. So, yeah, treating people ethically, uh, treating people civilly, uh, is certainly is certainly important, and uh, and that's a part of it, I suppose. Uh, but you can also think of moral apologetics as apologetics that's uh, specifically geared around morality. And so, when I say morality, uh, you all know what I mean, right? Uh, good and evil, and right and wrong, and vice and virtue. Uh, but also, also a wider set of um, uh, evidential considerations, you know, like essential human equality or in mm -hmm. intrinsic human worth or fundamental human rights all of these are are at root moral realities that we can recognize and um and that we can and that we can be moved by we can be touched by and so what we do in moral apologetics is ask is there evidential significance to these moral verities and moral realities, these moral phenomena, do they point to something of ultimate significance? Can they provide a window of insight into the nature of reality? That's the fundamental mm. question that we uh, wish to explore. And uh, so we do that in a variety of ways, and not everyone who's involved in it uh, are philosophers, some are theologians, some are Bible scholars, some are literature experts, some are, are historians or scientists. You can approach these questions from a wide variety of angles, and they're, they're questions that are really worth uh, exploring. And uh, we really encourage people to be attentive to the evidence, to take it seriously, right? Don't just sort of rush over it like, oh yeah, I duties, yeah, I, I got a handle on that, you know. Really think about the, the logic and the language and the um, you know, the, the inner experience, uh, the phenomenal nature of moral obligations, right? And uh, when, when you do such things, you, you begin to recognize that, oh, there's kind of an authority here that is overriding. Uh, where on earth did that authority come from? <laughs> right. Especially if, say, we're just collocations of atoms or something like that, right? I mean, isn't it more likely that something like binding moral duties or authoritative moral obligations are just... Um, um, uh, mere appearance, you know, on a naturalistic perspective or, or something like that. Um, but if you take those phenomena seriously as evidence and you think hard about their features and their, their, their salient characteristics, and then you trace that evidence out and you do it rigorously and, and carefully, right? Uh, the suggestion is that God himself is going to provide something of the best explanation of these various moral phenomena when taken when taken with uh, sober seriousness so that's what we do and we do it uh with uh, with joy and excitement it's a it's a marvelous time to be a moral apologist and so uh, that in a nutshell is what we're about although when you talk about the moral argument you don't always have to say and here is an argument just get people talking about things like obligations or intrinsic human value or dignity or equality and let them kind of come to their own conclusions and just guide the conversation. But there doesn't have to be anything heavy handed about it. This is really just about the most organic and natural way in which to do apologetics, it seems to me. 
You know, Dr. Baggett, having taken your class, I was amazed by, in Immoral Apologetics, it's kind of a survey class we did, and uh, I was amazed how deep uh, these issues of ethics can become. Uh, It's fascinating, fascinating material. Yes, it really is. So now, in your research, uh, you trace, and, and, and I'm highlighting for those who may be listening to the podcast and, and may not be very familiar with the moral apologetics, I, I, I want to just say I'm, I'm hitting on several of Dr. Baggett's books uh, that, he, that uh, he and Mary Beth Baggett and he and Jerry Walls have written. Uh, so, so in one of your books, you trace the history of the moral argument. Uh, who are the earliest moral apologists? And I'll be honest, I was surprised... Uh, to find out how far back the moral argument or you know moral moral apologetics goes. Yeah, well, I was too. You know, I did uh, this work for years and years without realizing the extent of the that rich and fertile history. And so, at a certain point, uh, well, what happened was, you know, as I'd, I'd work on this this through the years, I'd I'd be like, oh, I'm not even familiar with this person. Let me, let me write that name down, and that that list of names kept getting longer and longer, until eventually, I I called Jerry Walls one day, and I said, Jerry, we we've got to write a book on the history of the moral argument, man. And this is really rich, and so we ended up doing that. Uh, William Lane Craig actually traces the moral argument all the way back to Plato, believe it or not. He really thinks that uh, he's the earliest uh, sort of precursor when it comes to uh, when it comes to moral arguments. Uh, so, yeah, you've got some Greeks uh, that are effective precursors, uh, Plato and, and Aristotle. Uh, moving into the Middle Ages, uh, you've got a, a number of figures uh, who kind of began to intimate at something of the moral argument, or at least a feature of, of the moral argument. Uh, by the way, let me just say, uh, when you do moral apologetics, there's three basic things you have to kind of do to put the case all together, right? You have to predicate the whole thing on something like moral realism, right? Do we really think that there are these objective moral facts? That's called moral realism. Moral realism sounds more prag- uh, like pragmatic or something like, you know, let's be realistic. But we mean real in the sense that these things actually exist, they actually obtain. Right. So moral realism, that's very important. That's sort of the foundational principle on which the whole thing is, is based. And then you argue in favor of a theistic ethic. You know, the, theism, God himself, really robustly explains these realities. You don't have to domesticate them. You don't have to water them down or anything like that. And then the alternative secular ethical theories, you have to have principled reasons to think they they have shortcomings, you know, they have deficiencies, and they just don't explain things as well as theism does. Anyway, those three tasks. So as you go through the history, you can find different people touching on different aspects of these, you know, one or one or the other of these of these parts of the moral apologists' uh, task. So in the Middle Ages, you know, you can find elements, for example, in, in Augustine. He had a lot to say about moral goodness, for example, and its connection to God. And Aquinas, especially say in his uh, fourth way, uh, some have cashed out in terms of a moral argument. Our friend TJ has uh, put together a little book on that uh, topic that's coming out with moral apologetics uh, press before long. Uh, guys like Occam and and Scotus and and um, uh, folks like that are very important. Anselm, of course, uh, and then more modern figures, uh, Descartes. There are elements in Descartes. Uh, some big names in the history of philosophy, as you can see. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pascal, you know, another Frenchman. Um, let me see. Uh, 
a Barclay uh, and uh, Butler, Joseph Butler. There's some hints in, in him as well. And John Locke uh, and Thomas Reed. And the list goes on. And by the way, these are all pre-Kant. <laughs> so oftentimes when people say, well, who was the first moral apologist? Uh, uh, folks will gravitate toward Immanuel Kant. And, and there's, there are good reasons for that, because he really was the first one absolutely explicit about the evidential significance of morality pointing to God, right? Providing us uh, grounds to postulate God's existence uh, in a principled sort, uh, sort of way. But all of those were prior to Kant. Mm -hmm. And so that was a, a neat discovery. And then, of course, subsequent to Kant, there's a whole slew of folks. And there's a whole mm -hmm. slew of contemporary folks. It's an exciting time to be a moral apologist, I'm telling you. Absolutely. Before we move on, Curtis, do you have any additional questions? No, I think just keep going. This is getting pretty rich so far. <laughs> so our next question was talking about some of the most important moral apologists. And see, you listed out several. Who, in your opinion, would be um, some of the most, if you could choose, like, say, two or three of the most important uh, moral apologists, who would you, who would you select? Well, uh, certainly Kant, and then subsequent to him, uh, I would ha I would have to say John Henry Newman, uh, tremendously important fella. So, if you wanted to read, say, especially the fifth and tenth chapters of his Grammar of Assent, mm -hmm. uh, which is a uh, you know an absolute classic, uh, those particular chapters give a version of the moral argument that very much key in on our experience of conscience as something of the vicar of Christ. Uh, he thinks that morality puts us in touch with God himself. It gives us real knowledge, not just the notional knowledge of God. We don't just learn about God. We have an experience with God himself through the experience of the conscience and, and of moral truth. Uh, fascinating stuff. John Henry Newman, I'd have to include him. Um, it's hard for me to just say two or three. Oh, Can I, I understand. say a few more than that? <laughs> yeah, sure, absolutely. As many as you William, want. <laughs> William Sorley, I'd have to say, uh, an, uh, an absolutely marvelous uh, figure, gave the Gifford Lectures. He was a Cambridge professor. And, and there's a really poignant story pertaining to uh, him. You know, he was sending chapters of his Gifford Lectures that very much were on the 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 moral argument, and by the way, in the history of the moral argument, you often find this to be the case, that at the apex of these really prestigious scholars' careers, they're working on this topic. Huh. It's just incredible. And so there Sorley was, and he's uh, he's got a, a son named Charles, and, and he's fighting in the war, and he's sending uh, his chapters to Charles uh, and getting feedback. Uh, Charles was really a, a smart uh, kid. Uh, and then right in the middle of writing about the, the goodness of God, because it was during World War I, William Sorley and his wife got the news that Charles had died. He had mm. gotten shot and killed at the age of 20. Mm. And, um, and he's one of the four uh, World War I poets Charles was. A at that very young age, he was, he was a beautiful poet al already, and you can only imagine all that he would have produced in the course of his life. But, uh, but after that, you know, Sorley finished those lectures, but what you can detect on every page uh, of those le lectures that he gave that were later published is that he was defending the goodness of God, but he was reconciling it with the evil and the suffering that we find in this world. Because that wasn't just an academic question for him. He had just lost his son. Mm -hmm. And it is poignant, man. 
Sorley is amazing. Uh, Hastings Rashdarl, A.E. Taylor, he's one of my very favorites. Uh, his Faith of a Moralist, another absolutely bona fide classic in the field. I'll skip several other uh, figures, but there were, there are several others that could be mentioned, you know, but uh, skipping ahead to say C.S. Lewis, right? So now we're talking in 1950s, distinctly modern figure, uh, practically contemporary. Uh, book one, Mere Christianity, a very famous version of the moral argument. Now, when you ask people, uh, name a moral apologist, if they don't say Kant, they'll probably say Lewis, right? So Kant and Lewis, Lewis those yeah. are... Yeah, those are the two big names. But it's a lot richer than that. And Lewis stood on the shoulders of all of these guys. I mean, he <laughs> was very well read. He he had read all these guys, and they shaped his perspective. And then, of course, he added some distinctive things of his own. But then among contemporaries, uh, you know, Steve Evans, Paul Copan, Matt Flanagan, Mark Linville, two Anguses, Manoj and Ritchie, <laughs> John Hare and, and Robert Adams, I, I would say those are the two most important contemporary figures. Uh, but then you also have William Lane Craig, J.P. Moreland, uh, Austin Farrer. He was a contemporary of Lewis, uh, Steve Lehman, Jerry Walls, Scott Smith. I mean, the list and goes David on. Baggett. It's, uh, it's an exciting <laughs> time to be a moral apologist. And, and David Baggett. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So now I, I, I practice this word. I'm probably still going to mispronounce it. Can you describe the Euthyphro dilemma, and what is the best solution to the dilemma? Yeah. Well, I had a student some years ago who pronounced it the urethra dilemma. So I'm glad <laughs> that you did not do that. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, Curtis? <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> All right, that yeah, would be bad. Know. Interestingly enough, it was the Euthyphro dilemma that got me uh, interested in these questions way back when I was in college. So in an early Socratic dialogue called, appropriately enough, the Euthyphro, uh, there are just two characters in the uh, dialogue. There's Socrates and a fellow named Euthyphro. He's a young buck, and he's of a religious uh, persuasion. And uh, he bought into all of that, the lore about the Greek gods and such. Okay, And uh, they were both at the court... Um, Socrates was getting sued, and Euthyphro was taking his father to court for having neglected uh, a slave who had uh, committed uh, a crime, and the slave died uh, in his charge. And the son thought that his father's uh, behavior was uh, was uh, reprehensible, and so he was suing his father. Uh, Socrates was appalled and said, "Well, you must know what the nature of piety or justice, you know, or holiness is." So explain it to me. And this, of course, was his modus operandi. He was sort of feigned ignorance about these matters. <laughs> it, it wasn't the most endearing quality uh, that he had to those around him, as you know. Didn't work out so well. But uh, Euthyphro said, well, absolutely, I can explain it. It's doing what I'm doing, you know, um, bringing a wrongdoer to justice. And Socrates says, well, look, I'm not really asking for an example, but what's the essential nature of the thing, you know? And then Euthyphro said, oh, well, it's, you know, what, what the gods love. Um, and then uh, Socrates said, but look, uh, according to these legends that you can't claim to believe, the gods love different things. They don't always agree. Sometimes they argue. And uh, what are they most likely to argue about except vexed questions concerning the nature of piety and justice and the like? So then um, Euthyphro changed uh, you know, his, his account to, well, the pious or the just or the holy is what all the gods love, and the impious, the unjust, the unholy is what all the gods hate. Okay. Mm -hmm. And at that point, uh, 
at that point, uh, Socrates, um, you know, is rather skeptical. He's, he was skeptical about a lot of that Greek lore anyway, about the pantheon of gods. But he, he shifted uh, gears, pivoted a little bit, and he said, well, let me put it this way then. Do the gods love something because it's pious, or is it pious because all the gods love it? Expressed in contemporary terms, let's use uh, God instead of the gods, and let's use, say, divine commands instead of mm. the loves of the gods, and instead of piety or holiness. Let's just talk about morality uh, generically for the moment. So in contemporary terms, the Euthyphro Dilemma sounds something like this. Does God command something because it's moral, or is something moral because God commands it? All right, I'll say that again. Uh, does God command something because it's moral, or is something moral because God commands it? So you have two options, two horns of the dilemma. One horn of the dilemma uh, says, well, uh, God commands something because it's moral, right? But that makes morality seem independent of God, right? God's just kind of coming along, uh, checking the tables. Okay, here's what morality says. Okay, now I'm going to command that. You see, but it makes morality independent of God. At most, God's kind of functioning in this epistemic role of cluing us in, or a prudential role of motivating motivating us to do it. You know, like uh, you'll be in trouble if you don't listen to me. But uh, I'm not really the source of this stuff. You know, that kind of thing. And most uh, traditional uh, theists are resistant to that idea for understandable reasons, right? Because God, we think, is ultimate. But if you go the other way and you say uh, something is moral because God commands it, this raises a, a, a number of objections, um, the most salient of which is probably an arbitrariness concern. You know what I mean? So here the idea is, okay, well, if morality is whatever God says it is, if it's just a matter of divine caprice, then in principle God could tell us to do just anything at all, and it would become yeah. moral. So what if he right. told us to torture children or something mm -hmm. like that? Right. So, yeah, and so many people would say, well, this, this is a, a distinct problem for uh, connecting up God and ethics. You know, if you, if you embrace this sort of voluntarist horn of the Euthyphro dilemma, uh, and if you're something of a divine command theorist, then whatever God says goes, and that makes morality arbitrary, it makes it a matter of caprice, and you have lost your moral realism. You've lost your moral objectivity. Uh, do you see the problem? So either way you go, both horns of the the dilemma seemed kind of problematic. Absolutely. So, <laughs> like I said, this covers such a large terrain. Uh, well, first of all, let me yeah. open it up to Curtis. Curtis, do you have any questions as follow-up? If, if, we, if we place it without... Uh, how, how am I going to word this? If we place this argument without uh understanding that god is all good and all loving um and just we we really then have an argument that that basically at any point like you said god can god can make up a rule as, as a moral rule and and then that that is um that's essentially what we have to follow is yeah. that kind of what you're saying well, I haven't said yet what, what I think of the solution, but I, I think, yeah, oh. you're sort of anticipating <laughs> me. <laughs> Feel free to get, get ahead, though, Curtis. No, I think you're right, because if you think about the gods of Euthyphro, they really were capricious, you see. And Euthyphro mm -hmm. claimed to believe in all, of, in all of those stories. He said, yeah, I believe in their literal truth in every case. And, uh, you know, they were doing hideous things. They were 
behaving very much like right. human beings and bad human beings at that on occasion. And so arbitrariness concerns uh, are very real in a situation like that. Um, but even uh, many, many would say if you're a Christian, uh, it's still going to be a challenge, right? Uh, because some, some people will, will you know, point to, say, certain Bible texts, you know, like the uh, binding of Isaac or, you know, the slaying of the Amalekites, the conquest narratives and the like. And we'll say, but look, this isn't an academic matter for you guys either. Uh, your own book talks about God having done certain things that are morally questionable, right? So uh, you, you've got that kind of concern there. Now, I, I don't think that the, that the problems raised there are intractable. I actually do think there's a good uh, answer, and it's along the lines of what you're suggesting. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, but I will note this that uh, I do think that Christians tend, when they hear this, to think, oh, that's not a problem for us because uh, we can point to God's nature instead of God's commands. But again, that's only going to even conceivably work if God is really good, mm -hmm. right? Because if God weren't good, uh, appealing to his nature doesn't help, mm -hmm. right? We need a good God. So are there you know, reasons to believe that God indeed is good? And, and of course, I think there are uh, both a priori reasons and a posteriori reasons, both experiential reasons and uh, reasons that are sort of um, true in virtue of how it is we define God, right? God is, uh, say, on, on Selmian theology, the greatest possible being, right? The possessor of the omni-qualities, the great-making properties, possessed, you know, to the maximal degree and on a way that's, you know, uh, possible. So that means that God is, among other things, perfectly good, perfectly loving, and, and such. So a God like that is not going to and cannot issue certain commands, like uh, right. telling us to torture children for fun or something like that. Although some people might resist that because they say, but God can do anything, right? But God can't do anything. <laughs> God can't sin. God can't commit suicide. God can't deny himself. <laughs> if he could do those things, it would reveal a weakness uh, of his nature or his character. And he doesn't. He, he doesn't. You know. He, he he doesn't have any such weaknesses. So of course, there are some things that God can't do as a function of his perfection. And so, yeah, I think, I think that that's part of the solution. I also make a distinction between the good and the right, uh, issues of value or axiology on the one hand, issues of rightness or moral duties, deontic matters on the mm -hmm. other, so the good and the right. So when William Lane Craig gives his version of the moral argument, remember how he makes reference to objective moral values and duties? Mm -hmm. That's the same distinction, the good and the right. So having made that distinction, I basically em embrace uh, the voluntarist horn of the Euthyphro dilemma with respect to duties and the non-voluntarist horn with respect to goodness. In other words, God generally will command something because it is good, and it's good in virtue of uh, you know comporting with his nature and things like that, because I think God's essence uh, and, and nature and character is the ultimate locus of the good. Uh, but something is dutiful, a moral obligation for us because God commands it. So I happen to be a divine command theorist, but you don't have to be a divine command theorist to be a moral apologist. That's one of the neat things that I, uh, I uh, that occurred to me in the last few years. You know, you could be a natural lawyer, you could be a divine will theorist, you could be a divine motivation theorist, you can be a divine command theorist. As long as you think that morality essentially depends on God, and you mm -hmm. have good principled grounds for holding to that belief, 
then you can be a moral apologist and we can join hands together and push uh, the, the evidential significant, significance of morality is pointing, is gesturing toward God. And we don't necessarily have to agree on all of the fine-grained discussions about the nature of theistic ethics. So that's kind of a cool thing. But I happen to be a divine command theorist. So, yeah, I say something is is dutiful. Something is our moral obligation because God commands it. You see, not everything that is good to do is a duty for us to do. So in some way, you have to delimit what among all the good things there are to do our dutiful things, our obligations. And I think, in, in, in my view, divine commands make a great, uh, uh, make a great uh, candidate for explaining how to delimit what our obligations are. And just for, just for clarity's sake, uh, for our listeners who may not be very familiar with divine command theory, uh, can, can you go over again what div- divine command theory is? Yes. So, it's basically endorsing uh, one horn of the youth of dilemma, the, according to which uh, an aspect of morality is what it is in virtue of God's commanding it. And uh, most divine command theorists, contemporary divine command theorists, uh, following guys like uh, William Alston and Robert Adams and others, uh, delimit the relevant topic here to moral duties, obligations. In other words, this issue of moral rightness, this deontic matter of moral rightness. So they don't say it pertains to goodness. They say, rather, our duties come about as a result of God's commands. So if God commands X, then X becomes our moral duty as God reveals that command to us, which he can do in all kinds of ways. Uh, it doesn't just have to come through scripture. He can speak to us through conscience, through culture, through parental teaching, through reason. Um, you know, God can reveal you know his his will to us in all manner of ways. But having communicated in one way or another his will to us, uh, then we uh, apprehend in one way or another, either explicitly or implicitly, a divine command. And then, on my view, that is tantamount or constitutive of a moral obligation. Some uh, divine command theorists um, put an intermediary step in there and they say, well, there's God's command and then that causes a moral obligation. And that's a causal account. I just I just buy into a con- uh, sort of a constitution account where they're the same. Uh, but that's just a fine grained uh, uh, debate among divine command theorists. That much rides on it for present purposes. But yeah, this is the idea then that God ha- is the one with the requisite authority to generate moral obligations by basically commanding us to do certain things. And, um, and of course, it's predicated on God's goodness, perfect goodness, essential goodness, necessary goodness, recognizable goodness. And he created us. He created us for reasons and purposes. He loves us. He wants the best for us. So anything that he commands us to do is because he knows it's, you know, it's for our good. And, um, and, it, and there might, may well already be moral reasons to perform those actions, right? In almost every case, I think, uh, I think there is. But his commanding it gives a new reason, mm. an added reason. Uh, and it becomes not just a morally good thing to do, for which there are moral reasons, but a morally obligatory thing to do. We actually have an obligation, and we are blameworthy if we don't do it. Right, and uh, that's that's kind of my account on that. Awesome, Curtis. Anything additional? In addition, questions? No, just keep rolling. This is good. <laughs> so, 
Now, this is, in, in in my opinion, a very interesting aspect to uh, your moral uh, your, to your approach to moral apologetics. Now, many individuals, including William Lane Craig, use the deductive approach to moral apologetics, but you use a format called the abductive approach to moral apologetics. Can you explain, uh, and you may, if you don't mind, you may want to go through and, and discuss a little, dis- distinguish the difference a little bit between deductive and abductive, but can you explain oh, the abductive, yeah, <laughs> can you explain the abductive approach uh, that you use to moral apologetics and its benefits? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to do that. Uh, by the way, William Lane Craig and I co-taught a course here at HBU back in May, and and that was, I have to say, that was just absolutely delightful. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, it was uh, such a joy, such a joy. I love the he commercials is, uh, you uh, recorded for it, too. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. <laughs> he, is, he, is, uh, he is a sharp, sharp fellow and just a wonderful man. Uh, but interestingly enough, you know, in his lectures, he gave a deductive version, but he also gave an abductive version. Oh, so really? He, in, and in his debates, he has actually done it both ways. So his most recent debate with Eric Wielenberg, for example, he, he went an abductive route. Huh. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And, and, and I've given a deductive account on, on occasions myself. So it's not like, you know, there's this fundamental divide. And, and of course, he and I agree on so much more than we uh, dis- disagree on. Uh, really, the disagreements come down to maybe just a, a small few number, and they're not they're not super huge disagreements or anything like anything like that. In fact, we're uh, we have designs eventually on taking our notes from that class and turning it into uh, to a book. Oh wow! But uh, it's it's going to take a little while because we're we're both involved in a number of other projects at the moment. But yeah, maybe a few years down the line, I'd love to do that. And uh, it, it would be a good opportunity for us to talk about our differences because I think some people think that they are bigger than they actually uh, than they actually are. Um, okay, so this matter that you're broaching has to do with the nature of the logical connection between the evidence and the conclusion. And as you guys know, when you give arguments, you can you can couch them in different ways. Sometimes you can say there's an airtight case, and then other times you want to say, well, the evidential case isn't airtight, but it's still pretty good, mm-hmm. right? It's probabilistic or something like that to some degree. So let me just give you a, a, a quick rundown of, of some examples, right? So Steve Evans, uh, in his work, he talks about natural signs, which follow certain Pascalian constraints, so for example, of being uh, easily accessible, universally uh, accessible, but easily resistible. Right, and he thinks that there are some moral examples of natural signs, like intrinsic human goodness, moral obligations, and so on. And he thinks that these sort of gesture in, in you know, kind of point toward God. But there's nothing like an airtight connection. And if someone resists the, the connection, it doesn't implicate them necessarily in anything like patent irrationality. So that's kind of a looser connection, evidentially. Do you see between the the premises and the conclusion? So, so um, just to clarify, deductive, it would be like an airtight argument. And then the abductive would be a probabilistic argument. Probably it goes in that direction. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm going to be moving in that direction. So let me swing the pendulum from Evans all the way to the other side for a moment and talk about presuppositionalists for a second. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not a presuppositionalist, but what these guys would say is that not only is God a robust explanation of morality uh, or a good explanation of morality or the best explanation of morality, but the only explanation. Okay. Right, There's right, this right. 
absolutely right. airtight. Like you are irrational if you don't see it and that kind of thing. So that's like deductivism on steroids, right? <laughs> um, now, a, de a straightforward deductive approach is like, uh, like Craig's famous version. If God uh, doesn't exist, then objective moral values and duties don't exist. But they do exist. So God exists. Modus tollens, deductively valid, um, airtight connection. If the premises are true, the conclusion is necessarily true, right? right? Real airtight connection, um, and that's that's a that's a worthwhile approach, and especially in some contexts, say, say you you only have a few minutes and you want to be concise and succinct and get it out there, like maybe in a debate, right? Uh, I can understand why you 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 maybe go that way. I have no problem with that. Um, and then an inductive approach you guys know about, right? And um, Richard Swinburne thinks, for example, with respect to moral knowledge, that if you think about moral knowledge and you trace the evidence out, it gives you, it increases the likelihood of theism at least a little bit. <laughs> he actually isn't a big fan, uh, but he thinks that as an inductive argument, it increases the likelihood of theism at least a little. And some inductive arguments do that. They make the uh, conclusion more likely than it would otherwise be. Stronger inductive arguments might actually make the conclusion more likely true than not. This is the distinction between C inductive and P inductive arguments uh, in Swinburne. So as you can see, there's all kinds of different connections. The particular approach that I take, and I don't think there's anything sacrosanct about this. I'm not suggesting this is this is the only way to do it or the best way, or whatever. You know, this is just one uh, one more way that I happen to uh, go. And by the way, I was largely inspired by William Lane Craig himself because I heard him give an abductive case for the resurrection one time in a podcast, and I was blown away. And I was like, man, I want to I want to take that approach and use it <laughs> in this arena. <laughs> so it's funny that we have this reputation for having this big disagreement when he's the one who inspired me to use it in the first place. <laughs> Anyway, um, in an abductive approach, it's kind of like induction, uh, but it's a little bit different. Most logicians distinguish between induction and abduction. Um, and it goes back to guys like uh, uh, Charles Sanders Peirce and, um, uh, and Harmon, Gilbert Harmon and some others. It, it's essentially an inference to the best explanation, mm -hmm. an inference to the best explanation. Um, so let me first give you a very garden variety exa example of how abduction might work, okay? And then I'll apply it to the moral case. Suppose you go to a grocery store and you park your car, and next to your car is a yellow car, bright yellow car. And you go into the grocery store and you come back out, and that yellow car is gone, there's a dent in your car, and there's yellow paint uh, where that dent is. Now, um, you don't know with, with anything like deductive certainty that that yellow car hit your car. But you've got pretty good reasons to believe it, right? <laughs> so you mm -hmm. could construct a pretty good inductive case, but you couldn't really build a deductive case, uh, uh, right? But, uh, or, or, or you could, but the premises are gonna be less than, less than certain, and then whether the, uh, you know, uh, conclusion's more likely true than not is a vexed question. But you, can, you could easily apply an abductive model, right? So you imagine various possibilities, like, you know, Maybe there was lightning and it came down and it caused the dent and somehow made yellow paint appear, but that doesn't seem very likely, right? Or whatever. Or kids came along and, and thought, oh, this will be fun uh, as an epistemic experiment. And they knock in you know, your car, make a little dent and put some yellow paint. And they're like, they're going to wrongly infer that it was that yellow car that did this. Aha, got them. Uh, again, possible. Curtis, you wouldn't like, do something like that, would you? 
Curtis, I could see do that. <laughs> well, you, you've got you've hey, got wait a variety. A <laughs> you've got a variety of explanation candidates, but the most likely among them is is clearly that you know when the yellow car pulled out, it hit yours, left the yellow paint. So what you do is you construct a list of. Of, of plausible explanation candidates. Hopefully none of them are so implausible that they're just, you know, ruled out a priori from the get-go. Uh, and this, by the way, is going to be a challenge later because some people will say any God hypothesis is just so intrinsically implausible that's not going to count even possibly as the best explanation for anything. And that, you know, that's an interesting challenge. Um, but we'll get to that later. Anyway, you construct a list of potential explanation candidates, and then what you do is you narrow down to the best explanation, and you do this in a very deliberate, careful, methodical, systematic way, and you, you, you by using a principled set of criteria, right? So I'll just mention two. There's probably four or five that we could mention, but like, say, explanatory scope and explanatory power, right? How much is explained and how well is it explained by the various rival hypotheses and the uh, so the idea basically uh, again when you rule out things like ad hoc uh, explanations and whatnot and and figure in conformity with other beliefs and the like you you ask okay which of the various potential explanations provides the best explanation in terms of uh, scope and power and that's then the best explanation and you've got at that point good reasons at least tentatively to infer to it as the likely true explanation you're making an inference to the best explanation again it's not a deductive case mm -hmm. you could be wrong uh, it's it's um, it's not a, a hundred percent guarantee or anything like that but it's a principled way to to make inferences. We do it in history. We do it in science. We do it in all sorts of areas. We do it in philosophy. Yeah, I was getting ready to say that in in history, especially, you know, you you do this most of the time. I'm about all the time, yeah. I would say. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So this is the idea, and um, and so so that so this is my approach to the moral argument. So uh, again, I start with the evidence. You know. Um, intrinsic human worth, essential human equality, binding moral obligations, um, intrinsic goods of various kinds, moral knowledge, moral transformation, moral rationality, um, and, and the like. You know, it's actually quite a significant list. You know, I give a fourfold case at any rate. Uh, that's the evidence. You take serious time looking at the logic and language and the phenomenology of this evidence. You really look at it carefully. You don't just rush it. Owen Barfield used to say, you know, the reason why we're not deep thinkers anymore is we're in too big of a rush. <laughs> he says, slow down. <laughs> really look at this evidence. Really look at yeah. this evidence. Feel the, feel the force of the evidence. And this is what all of these icons in the history of the moral argument did at some length in their professional work, you know, at the zenith and apex of their careers, they took the time uh, to to investigate these things. Uh, they, they lived and breathed this stuff. They lived with these arguments and let the evidence sink in and really impact them. And uh, that we need more people today who are able to catch this vision and get involved in this exciting work to and do the same. Anyway, you, you start with that evidence, you follow that evidence out, you ask what is it about the world or reality uh, that would explain the existence of these otherwise kind of radically odd features of the world, right? And you uh, construct a list of potential explanation candidates. And I would argue that theism should be included in that list. And that, in fact, when you do the work, you can make a very serious, sustained case that theism actually exhibits the best explanatory scope 
and the best explanatory power of all of the various explanations on offer. And we can, on this basis, in an abductive way, at least tentatively, infer to theism as the likely true explanation of a wide array of moral phenomena. Bravo. <laughs> wow. I'm glad you're on our side. <laughs> Courtesy. There, man. <laughs> so, Curtis, any follow up? No, no. I'm just gonna say. I'm gonna say. I could. I could almost. I could say. I could argue for a deductive uh, position on the yellow paint on the car because, you know, it was there and there was a yellow car there, and I got yellow paint on my truck now, and I know that that's where it came from. Well, you could say, <laughs> of course. Um, uh, if you have this dent with the yellow paint, then it's that car that did it, and you have it, so that it's that car that did it. And that would be a deductively valid argument. But then, of course, you don't know uh, that the first premise is, is true. But you might have principal reasons to uh, believe it to be true. Um, whether whether you know it to be true, though, is a, is a different matter. Uh, you probably you know have a certain amount of reason to believe it, something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that's just sort of a heuristic device, though, uh, to illustrate. You could really illustrate induction with it, deduction with it, uh, abduction with it. Uh, again, these are not in competition. These are just different ways in which to couch the uh, the evidential connections. Um, and personally, I think that in a lot of our sort of street evangelism, if you will, um, less than deductive approaches are, are often the best way to go. For example, if you're having a discussion about morality, you might think, well, you're not going to have time to do the full abductive case. I mean, yeah. to, say, to say it's the best explanation means you right. literally have to take on every comer, right? But in a practical sort of way, when you're having a conversation with an individual, you don't have to worry about every other theory under the sun. You can just say to them, well, how would you account? right, for something like yeah. intrinsic human value or essential human equality or binding moral rights or duties. See what they have to say. Maybe they're a social contract theory theorist or maybe they're an error theorist or maybe they're an expressivist or, uh, you know, a, a virtue theorist or whatever. And then you say, okay, let's talk about that, you know, and then you have your view and they have theirs and you can kind of compare and contrast and have a nice fruitful conversation. Um, but I, I think we have to get back to this idea that apologetics is often about generating fruitful dialogue and not right, just exactly. this mic drop moment of I've got this, yeah, absolutely. you know, uh, argument that's absolutely going to blow you away, you know. Uh, it's just not the way we tend to uh, do life. Um, you know, and this is one of the things I love about John Henry Newman and his epistemology. He had a very vast expanse of epistemology, and it was true to the human condition. He recognized that when we change our minds, it's usually because of, you know, a thousand different factors that are working on us and that have been working on us, you know, maybe for years. Um, backing people into a corner and forcing them on pain, pain of... Uh, irrationality to be you know instantaneously persuaded by an argument I think is generally bad form and what we need to do instead is just relax um, trust uh, the Holy Spirit um, trust God's providence and uh, sovereignty um, you know demonstrate love in our interactions uh, offer persuasive reasons for them to take these things seriously, help them to understand the, the potential cost that, that goes along with the view that they might wish to hold, right? Mm -hmm. Like maybe having to give up something like belief in essential human equality or something like that. And then 
entrust the person into God's hands, you know, believing that God will continue to work, uh, right. you know, with them. And you've planted some seeds, and um, others will uh, water, and and God will give the increase, and we can we can relax, and we can know that it, it's not on us. Yeah. So do you think maybe some of the struggle that we see with some of this is um, like when you're talking about you know street evangelism, you know that. And and I get what you're saying there, and maybe maybe it comes from a lot of um, we gotta we gotta get them to the cross right now, right here, and we gotta we gotta get this uh, we gotta get this done, rather than leaving them with a question that they have to actually work through an answer, and leaving the Holy Spirit up to to be able to do that work. So you actually are prepared to be okay with walking away with just giving them something to think on than to come back and allow them to be able to actually have a discussion a little deeper about that. Yeah, well, that, that's right. I mean, if you're a street preacher, you're proclaiming the, the gospel and that sort of thing. That's that's right. one thing. But right. in what we want to do as, as apologists oftentimes is engage people in conversation, uh, entertain their questions, you know, not be in too big of a rush, not be pedantic or dogmatic, be dialogical, be conversational, be respectful, and be uh, rest content with planting seeds, you know, and trusting that God will, might uh, well uh, produce the increase uh, later on. You may or may not be uh, privy to, to that happening. Uh, but right. yeah, um, I, I think that we have to be just sensitive to God's spirit. I mean, you might have a purely dialogical approach, and God might say, "Hey, give this person uh, the, the gospel right, right here and now." Yeah. Uh, they're, they're right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so just be sensitive to God's leading. I'd say. And that's one thing I appreciate you, Doctor Baggett, is that that you emphasize that we as apologists need to be not not only you emphasize the moral argument, but you emphasize the fact that we apologists and Christians in general need to be moral people, ethical people. And I had a conversation with a good friend of mine just this past week about how um, s- some apologists have come across really crass. And, you know, he and I were talking about, because, you know, I struggle with my faith, and we, we were talking about how the way that some people behave in this modern culture, that if we were agnostics or unbelievers— I don't know just by their sheer behavior that we would be convinced of anything because of the way they're behaving. And so I think that um, you bring about a great point that we not only need to emphasize moral apologetics, but we need to be ethical and moral people ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you need to, um, and you have a privilege to, all of us do, uh, sort of exhibit some of that goodness that can mm-hmm. move people. You know, the moral argument is ineliminably experiential, kind of like an aesthetic argument. If people don't have an experience of beauty, an argument from beauty is not going to move them. And, and if people don't have the requisite experiences of goodness, then a moral argument is unlikely to move them. This is different from, say, a cosmological argument or an ontological right. argument. You know, this is an, an ineliminably experiential thing. That's just that's just the nature nature of the of the argument, and that's okay because it gives us a really neat opportunity. Uh, I'd encourage you guys all to check out something on our website, moralapologetics.com, something called Too Good Not to be True. By, uh, it's a lecture by David Horner, mm. uh, who's out at uh, Biola. And, um, he's a wonderful, wonderful fellow, good friend, uh, dear guy, and marvelous philosopher. But he distinguishes between plausibilizing and credibilizing the message of the good news. And one pertains to intellectual reasons to believe, but the other pertains to helping someone to believe that it's at least even possibly true. Because some people 
had been so turned off, you know, <laughs> by negative experiences with Christians in the past that they don't even, th it's not even a live option or possibility for them. So they're not interested in hearing the arguments because they're like, this isn't even possibly true. You might as well be trying to convince me in the existence of the truth uh, tooth fairy or something. Yeah, yeah. You see what I mean? And, uh, and Horner says, in our interactions with people, we have an opportunity perhaps to give them that requisite experience of goodness that can function as that, um, you know, required um, precondition for their openness to the gospel. And that's, um, that's a very high calling indeed. One, one really quick thing I'll say, and I can't go into much detail because of the um, con conditions in which this had, but I spoke with an individual one time before who was an unbeliever, really questioned their faith. And um, by the end of the conversation, uh, because I, I treated the person with with uh, morally and, and and ethically because I treated the person with love and exhibited love, that individual allowed me to pray with the person. Um, and I, I, I deemed that a real honor. I think God was God was definitely in that. But but uh, I, I, showing love opens doors uh, that that being crass and hostile doesn't. And so yeah. yeah, you know, and we just have to resist that temptation to indulge, um, you know, that those worst uh, instincts that we have, you know, because <laughs> we, we all yeah. have done that. We've yeah. all crossed lines. We've all made mistakes and God offers us grace for that. But let's learn from those mistakes and do better. I'm half Irish. It's a constant battle for me. <laughs> <laughs> so a uh, couple more questions here for you. Uh, you, William Lane Craig, and Alvin Plantinga have all noted the power and impact of moral apologetics. Uh, why do you think it's such a powerful argument for people on the streets? Because I think, was it you or William Lane Craig? Well, someone said that they were even asked uh, of all the questions they, they, that this one showed to prove to be most powerful with the audience to which they were speaking. That's right. William Lane Craig says that when he goes to college campuses and engages in discussions and debates of various kinds, that it's the moral argument more than any other of the arguments that is effective. And uh, it's not his fav favorite argument. I mean, his favorite argument, the one that he's done the most work on, is the cosmological yeah. argument, of course. Okay. And, um, <laughs> of course, he's done so much in so many different areas. Um, but he, he admits that, why, wow, this one really has a strong impact in a practical way. And Alvin Planiga you know, back at the Baylor Fest some years ago in preparation for that couple dozens book, a uh, couple dozen reasons to believe book uh, based on an old article of his. He was asked by, uh, by Trent Doherty, um, uh, which of the various arguments from natural theology do you consider to, to be the best? And Plantinga said, well, in terms of the strength of the evidence and the and the strength of the logical connection between the evidence and the conclusion, I would say the moral argument, which is fascinating because back when he uh, when he worked in natural theology in the late uh, '60s and thereabouts, writing God and Other Minds and such, he hardly mentioned the moral argument. So uh, he really kind of underwent a change of mind over the years on that on that matter. It was probably connected to his sort of reducing. The, the standard of what a good argument requires. You know, he realized a good argument doesn't have to, you know, be you know, universally persuasive to all rational persons necessarily or anything like that. And once he opened up the door to that, he, he began to feel the force of the moral argument to a much greater extent. 
anyway, that's very exciting. But the fact that both Craig says it's the most persuasive and Planiga says it's the best among the arguments of the natural theology, and I'm not really interested in issues of what's the best, because I right. have like a, a variety of arguments, and I think they work best in tandem in, in cumulative cases and such. But uh, the fact that both of them had this to say about the moral argument, uh, I, I think is very significant. And there, there's all kinds of anecdotal evidence about people like Leah Labresco, famous atheist blogger, um, who converted to uh, Christianity on the basis of the moral argument by her own admission, and plenty of others besides. Uh, that's significant. And I think it's because this stuff is deeply existentially meaningful. Every day when we get up in the morning, we are confronted with the questions about what kind of lives we want to live. And are we going to be, you know, uh, good people, or are we going to yield to various temptations? Are we going to pursue a life of uh, virtue, or are we going to fall back into vice? Every day, we we are deeply acquainted in a very existential way with this challenge, with this struggle. And I think we, that we just have a visceral recognition and apprehension of important moral truths, you know, like people have dignity. People mm -hmm. have value, and we just yeah. know this intuitively. There's no denying yeah. it. What explains these matters? So you really can't get away from it if you are at all attentive to the evidence. So for reasons such as these, I, I think that you know uh, um, it makes perfect sense that moral apologetics and various moral arguments for God's existence uh, have moved a great many people. Amen. Yeah, that's good. I... You know, I use that, um, I kind of use a basis of that when I'm talking with people and we're discussing about where we get the very idea um, that something is, is good or bad. I'll use that kind of that same thing. You know, where where did this originate from? Where do, um, you know, it, it just, when you actually break it down, like you were just saying, how how it really just kind of almost streamlines us right into that conversation with that person yeah very natural organic way to do it i think yeah absolutely well dr baggett uh man alive what what a wonderful podcast uh and man you, and as we <laughs> you got an open invitation my friend oh <laughs> uh, you're super. Well, before we close, uh, take a few moments to tell us about the center. I mean, we, we, we've recorded an advertisement. Uh, we're going to we're going to add this on all of the future uh, Bellator Christie podcasts. Take a few moments to tell us about the Center for the Foundations of e Foundations of Ethics at Houston Baptist University, and also about moralapologetics.com. Absolutely, I'd be, be very glad to. Thanks for this opportunity, and thanks for the, for the uh, uh, chance to do this podcast with you guys. It was, it was a lot of fun. So I, I had something of a vision to start a, a center for moral apologetics way back when, when I was at um, Liberty, where you and I met. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, when Jerry Falwell Sr. was still alive, his uh, last year alive was my first year at Liberty, and I wrote him uh, and broached the topic uh, of starting a center for moral apologetics there at Liberty. Uh, but, uh, you know, he, he died shortly thereafter uh, for reasons unrelated. Um, <laughs> but for, in the ensuing years, I tried to get, you know, the administration there to uh, take this idea seriously. And they, they never quite caught the vision for it. Uh, so a few years ago, I was still feeling very strongly about it. We actually had a prayer meeting in our Lynchburg house with Steve Jordan 
with uh, T.J. Gentry and my pastor and his wife and Mary Beth, and uh, we had tacos and we prayed about starting the Center for Moral Apologetics. And you know, it didn't look likely it was going to happen, but we still somehow had this sense that it was something important to do, because you know, you can you can write books and you can do podcasts and you can try to have an impact and an influence, and it's very easy if you don't if you don't set up some sort of institutional mechanism mm-hmm. to. Uh, continue these uh, truths and teachings, a lot of that can kind of easily be lost and, and can be yeah. can, and dissipate through the years. You know, when I studied the history of the moral argument, I realized, oh man, these guys' work is so important. We've got to engage in this historical recovery because we can't lose this stuff. It's so important, so important. Anyway, uh, the idea was let's start a center and it, we can kind of make it a hub of cutting edge research on the moral argument and it can be interdisciplinary. Folks from all kinds of disciplines can contribute, but but basically we can create a community of scholars who were involved in cutting edge research on various aspects of the moral argument you know so you might have one person working on empathy you might have another person working on the phenomenology of moral obligations another person working on uh, the topic of shame and how it stands in the way of our recognizing god's goodness and a thousand other topics right and um, we needed a place like this and uh, a place that could help hold conferences and workshops and host lectureships and give scholarships to students and start a say a certificate program in moral apologetics and really train world-class premier scholars in this field that was the vision mm-hmm. and it was a vision that came to me unbidden and it didn't go away and that's why I was firmly convinced that it really wasn't a me it was of God and mm-hmm. so a few years ago when nothing was happening you know, there in Virginia, I started writing college presidents and uh, I explained the vision. I just laid it out and almost every one of them wrote back very kindly and said they love the idea, but you know, uh, they just didn't have the resources and whatnot, except one person. And that was Robert Sloan mm-hmm. at, at Houston Baptist, who not only loved it, bought into the vision, saw it, could feel it. Uh, he said, I want to, I want to do this at HBU and I want to do it as soon as, as soon as it's practicable. Wow. And we then just um, uh, let things kind of swing into gear. We uh, we began to prepare. We, we prayed. We believed. We uh, hoped that it would happen. And sure enough, last year in uh, July, Mary Beth and I uh, packed up and uh, drove from Lynchburg to Houston, and uh, we relocated here. Uh, and it was it was all because we wanted to do this center for moral apologetics. We felt that strongly about it. Yeah. They both they gave us both positions: her in uh, English, me in uh, philosophy and philosophical apologetics. She also does cultural apologetics. We couldn't be happier to be here. It's a wonderful school. It's got godly leadership. It's got a visionary for uh, a president. We absolutely love uh, Dr. Sloan, and we so appreciate his giving us this opportunity. And we are trusting God for the increase. Uh, we right. are believing right. that in time, this is really going to become something something big, something important, and something that will outlive us. And uh, the w- a week before our contract kicked in here, oh, July of last year, I started a journal. And I keep a journal about the center, um, and I write in it every day. I've written in it every day since uh, a week before my contract. And I'm going to continue, if God uh, allows me, to uh, keep that journal uh, every day and chronicle the developing, unfolding history of the Center for uh, Moral Foundations here at uh, Houston Baptist. Originally, we called it the Center for Moral Apologetics. Just recently, we changed that title 
to the Center for the Foundations of Ethics, just to make it clear that this is what we are about in a fraught historical and cultural moment when moral uh, foundations are eroding at an ever quicker pace. We want the center to stand uh, as a fortress, as a bulwark, as, as a hub of cutting edge work and research in this area to train, prepare premier world-class moral apologists to use these powerful resources in their evangelism and to train others to do so uh, as well. And I don't think there could be a better place that we could do it than right here at Houston Baptist. Also, uh, this summer, June of 2022, we'll be kicking off our certificate program in moral apologetics. It'll be a four-course sequence wow. or corresponding to the tetralogy on moral apologetics that Jerry Walls and I have written with uh, Oxford University Press. Uh, defending theistic ethics, defending moral realism, critiquing secular ethics, and teaching people about that rich and fertile history of the moral argument uh, that we talked about the, before. So check it out. Check out moralapologetics.com as well, where uh, Brian Chilton here is one of our uh, uh, contributing uh, editors and a valued member of the team. I really, really love my team uh, of moral apologetics people. I've got Jonathan Pruitt, I've got Jan Schultes, David Chopsky, TJ Gentry, Steve Jordan, my dear wife, Mary Beth, um, a, a few others. Uh, TJ's friend, uh, Tony. What's Tony's last name there, uh, Brian? Do you know? <laughs> it just lived. I just <laughs> wanted to say Starks, but that's not right. That's Iron Man. <laughs> I don't think that's right. We don't have Iron Man. Um, anyway, no, but yeah, he's newish, uh, but we're so glad to have him on board as well. He's a blessing. Uh, but yeah, God is putting the, together this team. I think he's doing exciting things. We, uh, we've applied for a grant to put on a major uh, uh, conference on the moral argument that will be uh, related to a book that Yale's John Hare and I are working on for Oxford University Press, a big anthology on the moral argument. So we have a contract and that's underway and I've got all kinds of big names associated with it already. Uh, we're hoping to get this grant. I'm going to hear on Friday. If so, then uh, in about a year or two, we're going to be able to put on a major, major uh, conference right here at HBU on the moral argument, put the school on the map for the place to oh, come awesome. to study the moral argument. Dr. Baggett, if there are people out there, maybe churches, maybe uh, individuals, who businesses who would like to contribute or help out uh, some, in some way, uh, the Center for the Foundation of Ethics, how might they go about doing that? Yes, I, at the HBU we, uh, website of the Center for Moral Apologetics, uh, it's yet to be renamed on the on that site. There's a there's a place for giving, and we have really been praying that uh, uh, people would uh, God would raise up people to give. Uh, you know, you hate asking for money, but this really is for a worthwhile thing. It's not for our you know aggrandizement. It's not for our benefit. Everything would go toward the center. It would go toward scholarships. It would go toward lectureships. It would go toward conferences. It would go, I mean, this really would be a way in which to contribute your money that would make a, a difference to the kingdom, that would really prepare people to use these resources to argue, not just that God exists, but that God is good. God is mm -hmm. loving. God is gracious. God is holy. It's just the sort of antidote we need to the eroding moral foundations of our cultural moment. Amen. So will those uh, will those courses be um, be online as well, or will they be uh, actually online and in person, or just in person? 
both. Uh, if people want to uh, attend in person, they would be able to do that. And if they want to uh, take it online, they would be able to do that. Uh, so it's going to be that that kind of that kind of um, opportunity. Uh, people oh, cool. anywhere could take it, and people locally can take it in person if they wish. So so both both of them would be a certificate program. And and you could be doing it. Uh, that's great because I'm just thinking of myself, you know, doing it online, away from you know, away from there. That'd be great. Yeah, it'll be a four core sequence. We're going to do the first two this this upcoming summer, and then the second two the following summer. And in between, we're really going to foster community as we're reading books together uh, and having uh, conversations with one another and meeting, you know, in Zoom sessions with one another and discussing these things. It's really going to be an effort to build community. It's not just going to be garden variety classes. It really is going to be participation in a community with a vision for moral apologetics. Well, there you have it, folks. There's our uh, there's our, our interview uh, with Dr. David Beggett, and we just thank uh, thank you for spending time with us. Um, we value that time. Our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. Until next time, Brian and I say, Soldier on, friends. been listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Hi, I'm Dave Baggett. I'm the director of the Center for the Foundations of Ethics, previously called the Center for Moral Apologetics, at Houston Baptist University, which in this fraught cultural moment of eroding moral foundations exists to explore the ultimate questions about ethics. What explains intrinsic human value, for example, or what accounts for authoritative moral obligations or essential human equality or basic human rights? We aim to foster a community of scholars from an array of disciplines to delve into these questions with care and rigor. In the process, we hope to highlight the evidential significance of bedrock and axiomatic moral truths when it comes to matters of the human condition and ultimate reality. In June of 2022, we will be kicking off our certificate program in moral apologetics, a four-course sequence on the history of the moral argument, a course defending moral realism, a course defining and defending theistic ethics, and a course that reveals the shortcomings of secular ethical theories. So check it out on the HBU website and at our own website, moralapologetics.com. 
Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristi.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristi.com now and submit your question. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today.